afternoon or indeed good evening depending on where you may be and welcome to another scintillating episode of the jackass cast brought to you by corner gas fan corner or www.cornergasfan.com now every week i say i am bringing you an amazing guest and this week is no exception i often sound like a, i don't believe quite how I've managed to pull these things off and it's true I, I don't know how I manage it but this time it's especially so in this case because my guest is Colin Mockery the legend that is Colin Mockery of Whose Line Is It Anyway fame and many other series and shows and stage shows and DVDs and tapes probably eight tracks reel to reel and, and Viewmasters I'd imagine uh, but uh, he agreed to be on my little show. I couldn't believe it because uh, obviously his link to Corner Gas is, is minuscule. I think he'd be the first to agree. He was in an episode in season one for all of maybe 20 seconds, maybe a bit longer. But it was a great gag and he was there nevertheless. So he counts. We're allowed to have him on. Now I have to admit this episode was a nightmare to edit. That's why it's taken me a little while to get it out to you. Mainly because... I didn't realise quite how badly I was coming across as a big fanboy. Listening to it back was really quite embarrassing because I have been a massive fan of uh, Mr. Mockery since I was a teenager when I was a fledgling comedian myself. And I followed him for all those years, all those many, many years. And to actually be talking to the chap quite the honour as I say so I was a little bit nervous and I thought I was doing quite well at the time but listening to it back lots of errs and ums and uh, giggling and stifling of giggling and I do apologise to, to Colin for that if he had noticed it while we were recording but hopefully you won't because I've edited all that I shouldn't have really brought it up should I you wouldn't have known any different oh well never mind but anyway during our conversation you'll hear him mention that he's trying to get a show together to use on the internet to try and do the improv thing but use the internet to its advantage so he can get a show out to everybody in these troubled times that we are all living through at the moment uh, obviously we can't go to the theatre we can't go enjoy the show performers are having a hard time uh, earning money and uh, getting their uh, art to everybody so it seems in that time since we spoke a few weeks ago he's pulled it off uh, Colin and his uh, stage partner Brad Sherwood are bringing stream of consciousness to us, uh, certainly in the UK, on September the 18th and 19th, 2020. So if you're listening to this after that, you're too late, but I'm sure it will be on other times. And if you go to my website, www.cornergasfan.com, I will leave all the details there as and when it happens. And you can book tickets. If you want to book tickets for the shows on the 18th and 19th of September 2020, go to skiddle.com. That's skiddle, S-K-I-D-D-L-E. You can get tickets there. It's on Zoom, 
so you can watch it on your tablet or on your telly or your clever hoofer doofery i believe it will be a show much like whose line where we improvised games some old some new and i believe you also be able to get involved if you want to uh, make suggestions of situations and and hilarity will ensue so if you want to enjoy that i'll remind you of it at the end of the show but in the meantime here comes me and colin thank you for agreeing to talk to me it's, it's most appreciated no problem i run a fan site for corner gas over here when i put a call out to some of my readers and listeners as who they would like me to speak to the most you came up on top by a very long margin wow you gotta find new people (laughs) oh don't get me started on that one (laughs) it's a truly dedicated fan base and uh, there's lots of lovely people that i'll throw that in there to redeem myself from that last statement (laughs) nice because you spend a lot of time over here i I did yeah doing whose line and I mean, I'm Scottish, so I have still a lot of family over there. So, yeah. In my notes, I noticed you were born in uh, Kilmarnock. I am, yeah. All yeah. oh, right. So is all your family up in Scotland or are you dotted around England? Mostly uh, Glasgow. I have an aunt in Swindon oh. for the uh, the English uh, side. I know you moved to uh, Canada at an, uh, an early age. Yeah, it was six. Probably. Yeah. Oh, six? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And whereabouts did you relocate to? We went straight to Montreal for some reason, moved right into a French neighborhood. My my parents did not speak French. They just had a very strong Scottish brogue. So there was a lot of miscommunication between everybody involved. (laughs) That's quite a move to make at six years old. Was was, was it a difficult move to make? I suppose, I guess, any move like that. I mean... I was still fairly young. I just started school. And I was—I mean, I was a very shy kid. So uh, it always took me a little while. We moved a lot when I was young. So it was always took a little time for me to get comfortable. But I, yeah, I made some great friends there quickly. My accent was quickly beaten out of me by Canadian toughs. So uh, <laughs> we all have our traumas. There's, there's such thing as Canadian toughs. I thought that was... No, they, they're very polite before they beat you up. Oh, well, that's, that's something, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> except my fist. <laughs> and then you moved to Vancouver. Mm-hmm. So one place I've been to in Canada, so um, I know a square foot of it like the back of my hand. There so... <laughs> yeah, Vancouver. It's a beautiful city. I mean, it's, it's got the mountains, it's got the ocean. It has a really sort of laid-back uh, feel to it. Yeah, I, I enjoyed growing up there. It feels very cosmopolitan, I think, when I... And very artistic as well. Music, yeah. wherever you went, there's, that was a bit that really struck me. Is that the, the buskers are everywhere and they play at full blast. And I could only imagine them somebody doing that at the bottom of Oxford Street and getting the collar felt. <laughs> oh, yeah. And during Expo 86, it was the, the city was insane. It was just buskers everywhere. Everywhere you looked, there was some sort of entertainment going on. It was quite exciting. Yeah, it's oh, it's lovely to walk around, and I'd, I'd I'd live there in a heartbeat. I really would. I am an honorary Canadian, apparently, oh. because of my work with the site. Yes, yeah, many people have. I'm just waiting for the official paperwork to come through. Good luck on that. <laughs> <laughs> paperwork isn't our our big thing, but yeah, no, it'll happen. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. As I understand it, you still started getting into theatre and comedy at school and in drama school. 
Yeah. My plan was to be a marine biologist. And as I said, I was very shy. A friend dared me to try out for the school play. Uh, I got the part. And then I got my first laugh. And that was pretty much the end and beginning of everything. It was like, yeah, <laughs> this is what I want. I want this all the time. Uh, so got out of sciences, switched over to drama, uh, went to drama school, plugged there, uh, then saw a demonstration of this thing called improv and again, fell in love. So, yeah, I've been very, very lucky. That's interesting being a marine biologist. My youngest son, who's 10, wants to be a marine biologist. Was that from being in the sort of Vancouver area? Because that's, I'd imagine, is quite prevalent. With yeah, you. I think... Uh, that was part of it. Also, there was a TV show called Flipper about a dolphin. <laughs> <laughs> I think that heavily influenced me, sadly. Uh-huh. But yeah, I think it worked out for everyone that I, I didn't go there. So did you have a general fish-based knowledge anyway? or I have I have a, a general fish knowledge. A dolphin <laughs> or a mammal. So that... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you got your first laugh at uh, your first play. Was it a, a sort of a natural progression to want to do comedy was there a sort of serious theatrical side you wanted to do or? um com- even though i was shy amongst my friends i was quite funny and i always found it easy so in fact, after my first year of uh, theater school you know we had meetings with the uh, head of the program and the first thing he said was to me was you're really good at low comedy which I took as a compliment. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I enjoy certainly doing drama, but I, I, comedy is where I feel the most comfortable and where I obviously have the most fun. Do you think that comes, you mentioned that you were a shy child. I, I hear that story a lot from comedians. I mean, I, I used to do stand-up myself, and um, I wasn't, I'm, I'm, I'm no, you know, I'm a wallflower, really. <laughs> Um, yeah. I'm an introverted extrovert, maybe that would be. Do, do you think that goes hand in hand? Yeah, and it's it's hard trying to explain to people, well, but you're shy, how can you go in front of an audience with nothing and feel comfortable with that? And sometimes I think, well, maybe I should go into therapy and find out why that is, but then I'm afraid <laughs> well, maybe that will just destroy everything. I think part of it is when I'm on stage, I'm I'm with people I trust. I know what to do. So I have this environment where that's very safe for me. I, I'm trusting everyone. I know what I want to do. I don't have those guarantees in life. <laughs> but <laughs> on that stage for two hours, I know everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to work out. So you came up via theatre sports, if, I remember, if I'm correct. Right, yeah. I know a bit about it, but probably some of my listeners won't. So what, what's that all about? How, how does theatre sports work? Theatre Sports was actually started by a guy called Keith Johnstone, who was in Calgary, a British man who came up with this concept of improv done as almost like a sports event. So there were two teams. There was a referee who would issue challenges like you know, best musical scene, best whatever. Each team would do the scene. And then there were three judges that would um, judge them between one and five. And then at the end of the night, whoever had the most points won. You know, a few people got very competitive, but most of the time it was just just a chance to improvise and have fun. The score didn't really matter to most of us. There were some who just, there are still people I talk from theater sports who go, remember when we got that two on that, it's like, no, I don't remember that. I don't remember the scene. I've moved on. 
I, I learned so much during that time. And what I loved about it, it wasn't all actors who were part of the league. They, you know, we had uh, cable guys, we had writers, we had teachers. So it was a wide range of people bringing their point of view from, so it wasn't all from an acting student point of view. And yeah, some great players who all had their different skill sets. Some were great at character, some were great at narrative. So it was a great learning experience too, watching, I would watch the people do the things I couldn't do and try to figure out, okay, so how do I, how do I get that? How do I make those characters? How do I stay on the narrative? So yeah, it was just a, sort of an extension of, of drama school. I see. Because that, that's the bit that quite interests me, where I've spoken to people like Nancy Robertson before. Mm -hmm. And you assume that a comedian or a stand-up comedian in particular can improvise. And I'm sure they can to a certain extent, but really it's a lot more than that, isn't it? Yeah, it's so many. I mean, people always say, how how do you improvise? It's just so difficult. And it's not. It's because we, in improv, you have to do things that we don't really do in real life. And basically that is listen to people, say yes to their ideas and build on it and try to make them look good. That's it. It's a very <laughs> giving art form. And people, when I, I taught improv, the hardest part was getting people to accept other people's ideas because they would go in with, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And then yeah. if somebody would give them a suggestion and a very valid one, they go, no, no. So a part of it is you need your ego because, you know, that gets you out there and helps you. But you also have to rein it in. Because you are there to work as an ensemble. Everybody's there for the same thing. They want to make the scene work. So if I go in and I have a great idea, somebody has their idea out first, my idea is gone. I'm, right. that's what, it's now my job to support that and make that the best it can be. I see. That's interesting because um, I, I never really got into that side of things when I was interested in comedy and then I did the rounds a little bit and it would come up. And the only time I ever attempted it, was when I was, I think I was just leaving school and the teacher asked me to run a, a comedy class and I had the Whose Line Is It Anyway book that came out <laughs> at the time. I didn't know there was a book. There's a book, yeah, it's a very thin book. Okay, I, yeah, okay. I, it, was, it was top of my Christmas list that year. I read it vigorously, right, I can do this, I can do this. And I remember going into the class with the whole scenario of what basically because i was running it and telling what everyone to do what they had to do and i knew very few people were going to join in i went in with the scenarios pretty much all memorized what right i'm going to tell you to do this and then i chuck out a bunch of jokes which wasn't improvisation at all it was, <laughs> it was all pre-written but it would never have occurred to me that I would have had to have, if somebody did come back with something, that I had to chuck out what was already in there. Yeah. And that, that sort of proves proving the pudding. Yeah. And it really, I mean, it really, it's a great skill to have, not only if, if you're going to do it professionally, but in life. It teaches you not to go into a situation. I mean, we're human, so of course we're going to. But, you know, I <laughs> truly try to go into a, um, a situation as an open book and just take it as it comes along. So I'm not going to go, oh, I'm getting a bad feeling from this guy. I don't think I'm going to, I just go, okay, he may have had a bad day. That's the feeling I'm going, let's just see what happens. And most of the time it works out. 
yeah. you know, we're always our own worst enemy. <laughs> so <laughs> it probably tries to help you a little bit with that and trying to be more open. When you were at Theatre Sports, did you work with Nancy at all? Or? No, she, uh, Nancy was after me, I think, like shortly after me. I I'd moved to Toronto right after Expo, and I think she started soon after that. Oh, I see. Because she has a massive reputation of being an oh, amazing yeah. improviser. Yeah, yeah, I would love to have worked with Nancy. She's so perhaps, fun. Perhaps the opportunity will come up. You never know. I think there's a restraining order, so we'll see. Oh. <laughs> oh, I've got a big pile of those I've got to go through, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Man, she just throws them out, out of people. I don't know who she thinks she is. <laughs> they are the Sorry. nicest couple in the world they are both so sweet and funny when i've spoken to brent lovely lovely chap oh absolutely um, <laughs> and nancy too we get on oh, when I, I spoke we got on like a house off but we end up speaking about me more than we did <laughs> <laughs> where were we so so theater sports and then you moved to second city yeah was your next one stop and that is legendary mm-hmm is there a difference between the two, between Third Sports and Second City, and what you do? Or yeah, the um, I mean, Third Sports was mostly games. It was all games, and the improv in Second City was aimed towards getting scenes for the show because there would be an hour and a half show of s- sketches, and then we'd do a half hour of improv. And I mean, once the show was open, it was more just sort of fun improv. But once we're heading towards writing a new one, you know, people would have premises for scenes and we, we'd take it out and improvise it and then sort of hone it and then take it back out. So it was more, I think I was probably more aware as I was improvising of everything because I kept, I was doing it more as a writer. So it'd be, oh, that was a, oh, that was a good moment. I had to remember that. So we, when we got backstage, write it down. I enjoyed doing both. And again, Second City was another great learning experience. You know, I got to improvise pretty much every night with different people with their incredibly different points of view and again everybody had their own skill set it was there I learned to relax more well two things when I was at Second City I decided to work on things that I did not feel comfortable with so one of them was talking to the audience so after the show when we're doing the improv set I would say to the cast do you mind if I introduce this scene or that scene or start it off just so I could get more comfortable, find ways to sort of engage with the audience and you know maybe riff with them or try a little bit. And the other thing I wanted to work on was, I don't know if you know this, music terrifies me. So <laughs> I made it a point for every show that I would do a solo song of some sort. You know, it would be an original song. And it was always terrifying. But it was, I was never, you know, like Wayne Brady or you know, uh, Chip Beston or any of those guys. But I got to the point where I could sell it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's really all I wanted to do. Just get to the point where they, the audience wouldn't go, oh, my God, stop, stop. But they would go, oh, he, he's trying. <laughs> I could deal with that. <laughs> well, you, you sort of beat me to what, what, something that I've written down earlier. Because I know in whose line it's documented that the games that involved music were your least favorite. But I would argue that the way you got around it generally made it your own. And yes. yes, I would say that too. Um, would you prefer to explain that or can I, do you want me to? <laughs> I would, uh, no, I would do various things. Basically, most of, uh, especially in the early years, was me talking in time to the music and then fainting. 
Although I only fainted, I think, like twice. But it became this thing that, oh, he does it all the time. I didn't really. Maybe three <laughs> times tops. Uh, but I found, I always thought, like, during the hoedown, I was the audience representative. I was the one that the audience would go, oh, that would be me if I was in that situation. I see the terror in his eyes. He has no idea. He's kind of shouting. So I think I got by on that a little, too. Well, that was always my favorite bit. I always wanted, I was waiting for you to, to see what you did every episode. Yeah. <laughs> when you were at Second City, winding it back a bit, obviously there is a legendary venue, both in Chicago and Toronto, and, mm-hmm. and the lineage there is just phenomenal. And did that ever sort of put the fear up you a bit? Or was it more that you could embrace that atmosphere that these people have been here and yeah i mean it was sort of both it was intimidating you know as you walk through the halls and you see pictures of people like you know alan arkin and uh, nichols and may and you know bill murray and gilda radner all these people who influenced uh, generations of, of comedians and knowing that you're a part of that is intimidating, but it was also inspiring because you thought, you know what? I don't want to be the lame one. <laughs> I want, <laughs> I want to keep this, try to keep this level that these people have set. And yeah, sometimes it's daunting, and then at times you just kind of forget, and it becomes, oh yeah, this is my job. Until you walk out in the lobby and see all the faces on the wall and go, oh yeah, very <laughs> <laughs> institution. <laughs> Did any of the old classes uh, turn up to play with the new guys ever? Or? Um, every once in a while, someone would pop up. What I found odd was, because Catherine O'Hara did a Who's Line in Britain, and she was oh, terrified. About that. She was absolutely terrified. And I went, really? how... Why? You're Catherine O'Hara. <laughs> and all the guys had an incredible crush on her and we're just amazed by her i thought greg's head was going to explode he was so excited and <laughs> um it was because she hadn't improvised in a while and it really is like a muscle it can get flabby really quickly if uh, you don't do it so she hadn't really improvised i mean she had uh in the christopher guest movies but you know there was sort of an outline of what the scene was instead of you know these kind of free-form games that we do on whose line I've been very fortunate in that I've gotten to know all of those guys, the SCTV people. And uh, actually, I was talking to Andrea Martin the other day, name drop. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> one of the uh, best things about them was they were doing a benefit at Second City. It was to raise money for an alumni fund for alumni who were having medical problems and didn't have the money. So they put on a show using a lot of their old scenes from Second City. And they asked me to join them as sort of their sixth. So it was like, uh, for me, SCTV was a show that meant so much to me when I was growing up. It really inspired me. The fact it was Canadian um, really inspired me. So it was like the Beatles just said, hey, you want to sit in? And, uh, you know, we're doing Sgt. Peppers, if you want. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> I felt like that. So I with the guys, Eugene Levy is going through different costumes very methodically, trying them on, going, hmm, is this something? Martin Short is taping up his face, putting a uh, sweater under his shirt, and doing a hunchback character, going, too much? <laughs> so, well, you're playing a father in a PTA meeting, so <laughs> I'm going to say that. 
But I certainly am not going to argue with any of your choices. But getting a chance to work with them was just amazing. And seeing that in many ways, they're just like the rest of us. They were nervous. You know, they kept going over lines. And then once they were out there, it was just like watching this incredibly well-oiled machine work together. Yes, because was that uh, recently? Because I know they did a... Uh, yeah, it was uh, about five years ago, I guess. Yeah, was that when Rick Moranis and uh, Dave Thomas did uh, Bob and Doug? Yeah, that was that was a couple of years ago. For it was a benefit for Dave's nephew who had been in an accident, was uh, semi paralyzed, I think. So they were raising money. Yeah, so they did an, an evening, and then <gasps> they, um, Martin Scorsese did a documentary on them, and they had an, a part of it. There was a sort of an open talk at one of the theaters in uh, Toronto. It was just packed with people and them just talking about their experiences and they show clips. So I'm not sure when that'll be coming out, but that'll be interesting. I did not know that. I was just about, I'm going to have to write that down and remind myself because I'm watching that. (laughs) Yeah, I think it was, uh, I think they were making it for Netflix. I'm not sure on that, but yeah. So uh, yeah, I was very excited to see that. Oh, wow. That's amazing. I I can't wait to see that. (laughs) That's very exciting because... I like to think that I brought Bob and Doug to England. Oh. I'm a big movie geek as well as a comedy geek. And when I was a kid, I watched everything. I'd watch Paint Dry if, if somebody gave me the opportunity. And I was forever in the, the video store. And didn't matter what it was, I'd pick it. Whether it was age appropriate or not, it, it, I had it. And Strange Brew was there. I hadn't a clue what it was. I vaguely knew Rick from Ghostbusters, probably. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, because it was that before or just after. It's there or there about the same time. Laugh Like a Drain. I love that film. And um, I told everybody, because everyone at the time was into Wayne and Garth, I think. Wayne's World had just come out. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. Uh, Bill and Ted. And I remember putting, telling my mates, forget Bill and Ted, forget Bob and Doug is where it's at, and you got you got to see this film. And they all just looked at me. He's on one again. <laughs> this was like the time he told us to watch Jackie Chan. And <laughs> hey, come on, Jackie Chan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got. I love those guys. So I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take that one. That's going on my CV. That yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I don't want. I'm not asking for any money for that, but uh, you're, you're welcome, <laughs> Canada. <laughs> exactly. When it comes to improvisation and all those great guys and then I, I kind of put now anyway I put improvisers and stand-up comedians in different boxes and it's very rarely that the two will cross over like a Venn diagram there'd be very few names that you'd put in the middle Greg Proops would be one which would go in the middle I'd imagine yeah, um, and Ross Noble from over here yeah, yeah. Uh, by one of my favorites Am I tarring everyone with a big brush there, or do you think that's accurate? Hmm. How can I say things without getting into trouble? Um, <laughs> I mean, there are some stand-ups who have an element of improv in their well, in their set. Um, you know, uh, Ryan Stiles started off as um, a stand-up. I don't think he was a very good one, <laughs> but I think <laughs> his act mostly was improvising, throwing and every once in a while a Dolly Parton joke. It's a different skill set. I have improvised with, you know, stand-ups like uh, uh, Greg. You know, we always have fun improvising together. There have been some stand-ups who have trouble uh, being in a group 
And I think it really depends on the personality. You know, some stand-ups are more comfortable. They want to be the center of attention. They want their sharply honed words to come out and get the laugh. They're not as comfortable on the fly. So I don't know if it's becoming more popular where stand-ups are starting to use a little more improv in their sets. I've seen a couple uh, out here in Canada who seem to go with the flow more. They'll have, I mean, they have their set, but they will easily go off onto a tangent if a heckler or something strikes them funny. I mean, I have nothing but the utmost respect for stand-ups. I don't know how they do it. it to me, it's the most terrifying art form. And <laughs> God bless anybody who tries it uh, and does it, because I don't get it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so you've never tried it? You've never had a go? Um, I accidentally uh, I did it once. <laughs> it was perfect. <laughs> I had been, I was doing Whose Line in America. Drew Carey was hosting, and I got this call saying, there's this event, they'd like you to host it. And I thought, oh, I hate hosting, but I was at that point where I thought, you know what? I'm going to face my fears and do the things I don't like. So um, I said, sure. Then the day before the event... I got a fax, which tells you how long ago this was. It oh. said, uh, Colin opens up with 20 minutes of stand-up. I went, huh. So I wow. called and said, you know, I don't know if you know this when you hired me. I don't do stand-up. And they said, well, just be funny for 20 minutes. I went, yeah, okay. So I went to Drew, and I said, hey, Drew, uh, I have to do this gig where I have to do like, stand-up. Do you have any tips? And he kind of thought for a second and said, Get out of it. Uh, okay. That's a good tip. Uh, I don't think I can. So I ended up, it ended up, it was horrible. It was, there was no stage. I was on the floor. Everybody was schmoozing. At one point, someone ran up and said, don't go on yet. We're waiting for Spielberg. And I thought, what? <laughs> so luckily there were two guys. I, I did kind of an improv thing. The two guys in front of me loved me. They just kept giving me stuff. At one point, the person who hired me stood up and said, come on, listen to him. He's trying his best. <laughs> no, oh, no. I don't think this is my world. Mentioning Drew Carey there is uh, I discovered Drew by watching his stand up. I, I lived in the States for about three months, if that's counted as living in the States. And uh, when he's, he had a special out. And I think that's when I discovered his show as well. But he seems to be an ambassador for improvisational comedy uh looking through as i was researching your work his name keeps coming up as improv this uh, and improv losing green screen turn. Yeah. but i suppose he's another name that would be in the middle is uh, what what's he like to work with is is he uh he first of all it was because of him that the american series happened uh, at that time he was a big star at abc uh, the network here. Dan Patterson and Mark Levison, who had created the show, were trying to get an American uh, company involved. The American company they first went to wanted um, a, a VJ from MTV to host it, and they wanted good-looking nice. improvisers, which we all laughed heartily <laughs> about. And Dan said, you know, it works with the ugly guys. Uh, so at that time, Ryan was on the Drew Carey show in Drew was saying, you know, I really love uh, Who's Line. And Brian said, hey, you know, you're looking for someone to sort of partner with to do it here. They got together. And on Drew's say-so, it, it happened. And he 
I cannot say enough about him. Incredibly generous. He would take us on trips every year. The cast and their family and crew of both his shows, totally paid for. You know, the kind of millionaire everyone should know. Incredibly <laughs> <laughs> generous. And uh, what I loved about him when he, you know, he never wanted to be a part of the show. Uh, I, he just wanted to host. And the, of course, American Network executives don't believe things can work without their input. So they were saying, well, you have to improvise at the end. So he got books on improv. He would book a spot at the uh, comedy club and we'd go down and improvise with him so he could get comfortable with it and do it. Mm -hmm. And the more he did it, the more comfortable he got. And he has a real love for it. And as you said, from there, we did uh, Improvaganza and uh, Green Screen and uh, toured with him and you know, when you're with Drew, you're never going to have a dull time. <laughs> <laughs> I've read his book, um, Dirty Jokes and Beer, I think mm -hmm. it's called. And uh, it was interesting because he's from an army background uh, yeah. originally. And um, I love that book. There's one chapter which is full of rude jokes, which I absolutely adore and, and pass off as my own many a party. Along <laughs> with that. <laughs> <laughs> so when you came over here... How, how did that happen, actually? Because that was around 1989, 88, 89. How did you get involved uh, with an English yes. television um, I was at uh, Second City, and we did a show. They were doing um, a cross-country audition tour. They saw our show, really liked it, and had us audition the next morning at 8, which is not a great time for comedians anyway. No. Uh, it's like a thing because you do the show and then after the show we kind of hang together and talk and sort of blow off steam. So, you know, you get home around three. So we auditioned and because at that point we had worked as a cast for like three shows, we were doing that thing you do in improv where everybody was supporting each other. So nobody stood out. So none of us got cast. <laughs> then, uh, the next year we had moved. My wife had a, a show being produced uh, in the States. So we moved down there. I auditioned again, but it was with people I didn't know. So it was like, hey, screw you, look at me. La, 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 la. <laughs> and then I, I got cast. <laughs> so my first show was 1990. It was two months after my daughter had been born. So I went over. It was Mike McShane, Tony Slattery, and Sandy Toxvic. Oh, okay. Absolutely lovely. But, you know, I met them like two hours before the taping. And then I had that time to think, oh, I don't, <laughs> I don't really know these people. Uh, yes, we all speak the same language, but are we go will they get my reference? And so I totally psyched myself out and freaked. So I, I didn't have a great show. Throughout my life and career, I've been incredibly lucky. So the next year they were shooting some shows in New York. So they flew Clive and Josie over and... At that point, Ryan was on the show, and Ryan and I had grown up together and worked together a lot and said, you know, you should give Colin another chance. So they brought me back, put me on with Ryan, who I was comfortable with. And at that point, because we were in the States, all the British uh, improvisers were a little, oh, will they get me? Will they understand me? <laughs> so, um, so I had some great shows. So from there, it was a long, long climb to <laughs> becoming a regular. Oh, Every year, they would go, we'll give you two shows. And I go, okay. And then I'd end up doing the whole season. But for some reason, they never felt comfortable saying, yeah, we're, you're going to do all the shows. They would go, we'll give you one or two and see what happens. 
So, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but that's interesting because what, what I was going to ask you. So uh, Ryan started on the show before you. Yeah. Which I didn't realise because in my mind, as as a, a regular viewer, I used to tape it, everything, I watched it over and over again when I was younger. In my mind, it almost became the Colin and Ryan show because mm-hmm. I was watching for you guys. As much as I loved everybody else, Mike McShane, I suppose actually you could split it into because the early earlier series from sort of 88 to 90 then, you had John Sessions, Josie Lawrence, Paul Merton. And John Sessions, as funny as he is, he almost made the show a bit too highbrow. Mm-hmm. Because he would chuck oh, out all those references. We, we destroyed that. <laughs> it was it was absolutely hilarious. But you had to, I, I remember thinking, I have no idea what Shakespeare reference that is, but I know I'm supposed to laugh, so I will. I mean, um, I mean, I've never seen anyone improvise James Joyce before, so I was like, wow, <laughs> okay, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> I'm going to do Dr. Seuss. <laughs> but that, that's as I, I remember really I was tuning in for you guys but did that was that um, a conscious part of the producers because it seemed that they teamed everybody off quite regularly it'd be yourself and Ryan and Paul and Josie yeah, Mike and, and Tony Jim Sweeney and Steve Steen yeah there are people yeah that Sweeney and Steen had worked together for years they, I think they've been best friends since school so yes um and that certainly helps when you improvise with someone to have that history with them it's same with ryan and i well, mike and greg actually had an act together before uh oh. after one of them did who's lying in san francisco so uh when greg started doing the show i know he and mike did a lot of stuff together and josie and mike had uh, the musical stuff and mm-hmm. fit like a glove i mean it's supposed to be you can work with anyone if you everybody has the same improv foundations and and you can but there are those people that it, it just takes it a notch above because you have that personal relationship with them yes d- d- does that count as improvisation or cheating however <laughs> oh it does well, it can there are times especially now i mean i've been improvising with ryan for oh god like 40 years and there are times we're improvising where i go we must have made this up before. <laughs> there's no way. It's like, I, I I guess it's new, but there's sometimes I think, well, are we doing, we've done this. We must have. But uh, it keeps it interesting. Did that become an issue at all? Like, uh, I was something I wrote down was uh, such a long-running show, especially if you take into consider so UK, then US, that you, and you're playing the same games roughly most episodes. Mm-hmm. Did it become a point like, ah, oh, I've drained this premise dry oh, now? Yeah, I mean, we uh, every year, Ryan and I would talk to the producers and go, you know what, we love working with each other. You know, we, it's great. But there are <laughs> other people. And I think it would keep it fresh for everybody if we just mix it up more. But then there's that business side of, well, no, but you guys, you know, you deliver the goods and yeah but it's really it ended up putting more pressure on us because we'd have to find ways of getting into a mindset where we wouldn't fall back on something we've done before and try to find another way of doing something so it was fresh for us is that an easy thing to do 
with such background history and, and experience? It isn't easy. I mean, I've, I've been touring with Brad Sherwood for 17 years. And how we've done it was most of the work we put into it is coming up with ways of getting things from the audience so that we never get the same thing, so that we, we get something we've never had before. Whether it's, you know, what was your great-grandfather's occupation or, you know, what was the last thing you bought between $100 and $500. And we're constantly making sure we don't take the same thing because that inspired, you know, I love getting things I know nothing about because it gives <laughs> me kind of a clean, you know, I asked for an occupation, I got lactation expert. <laughs> I'm a pro in that. But that was like one of the most fun scenes we ever did because we were just literally making up crap as we were going along and it went into this great direction. And it you just feel energized after doing something like that. It's like, oh, yeah, amazing. Coming to UK and then doing the show in US as well, obviously, I suppose with that in mind, would you have to change your references? And I suppose in, that would make things more exciting then, I suppose, for you, if, if that was the case. Do you have to sort of manipulate your, your humour and things to, to make it fit? I think that's what screwed me up the first time I did it in Britain. And I'm not sure, because I have a British background, so I was very aware of all things British, you know, from Coronation Street to East Enders, Crossroads, Crossroads, <laughs> all these um, things. I'm going to have to in that one. I had a reference point for I don't know, you know, as I said, sometimes we're our own worst enemy. And then I realized, you know what? Goofy is universal. So that's, that's just it. I'm just going to, you know, I'm not going to make sharp political observations because it's not what I do and who wants that. But I'm there to be goofy. Um, I was doing a show with the Comedy Store players and Steve Frost, who I love working with, always likes to screw me around. So <laughs> we're doing a scene. It was going to be a musical. And he asked for a historical event. And the audience shouted out Charles II abdication speech. Ugh. And Steve goes, great. Colin will play Charles II. <laughs> <laughs> but I knew nothing. And so, uh, but what I love about that is it challenges. You have to do something. You can't just stand there going, I don't, but... I ended up, I think, doing uh, I Have a Dream, which still kind of worked. Yeah. <laughs> but I, those are the moments I love is when you truly are your... A lot of times when you're improvising, it's almost like you're in survival mode. You're just mm. trying to get through a scene because you have nothing really to grab onto except what you, you've got. Yeah. You know, there's this um, theory that, you know, when you're in a, a life-threatening situation and your life flashes before your eyes... It's because your brain is downloading all the information you have to see if there's anything that will help you get out of this particular situation. Right. And I think that's what improv is like. Your mind is constantly going, okay, how do we solve this? Got to get out of it quick. You mentioned the comedy store players there. For my international listeners, the comedy store players were people like Paul Merton, Jim Sweeney, Steve Steen, Lee Simpson. Neil Neil oh, Ashdown, yeah. yes, and the chapter plays the piano on whose line, whose name escapes me. Richard, 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 Ranch. Richard Ranch. Neil and Malarkey. Neil Malarkey is brilliant, absolutely mm -hmm. fantastic. Uh, Neil Malarkey 
for those who might not know, was Mike Myers' comedy partner for a long time, Austin Powers. And I suppose, excuse my ignorance if this is the case, but that's the closest we've got to Second City. Yeah. I don't think there are as many other, if any, institutions in this country that even match Second City. No, but the comic store, I mean, that's an amazing group of improvisers and comedians. They're like sharp and so quick and so funny. And I love they can go from highbrow and <laughs> like subvert it within the same sentence. It's, uh, yeah, they're amazing. And it's like a, a, a comedy club in more, more ways than one. I just remember because my, my crowning glory was a set there. And I went down like the proverbial poo sandwich, so we say. <laughs> but. I lived in that place as often as I could. I was at university at the time and I just wanted to go and learn. It was the easiest club to get to. Um, there's many around London, but that, that one in particular at the time, I think it's still there, is in Leicester Square, in between Leicester Square and Piccadilly. I'd live in that place, but the Wednesdays and Sundays was the comedy store players. And, oh, I couldn't get enough of it. I really couldn't. And... You could wander around there and there would be comedians, faces you recognise from the television, sat around the edges, right around the edges. They wouldn't, you know, they're hiding in the shadows. Kevin Day was there and uh, Mark Thomas and all all sorts of all the great stand-ups that we were producing at the time. And, oh, I love that place. I haven't been for years, though, I gave up on it a long time ago because I had to pay bills. <laughs> I wasn't good enough to be making money at it. So, I did. So, did you perform with them regularly? The comedy store players? Did you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would say regularly, but um, yeah, four or five times. Yeah, uh, with Paul and uh, Josie and Richard, and um, yeah, it was always so much fun. It's really relaxed and casual, but yeah, a lot of fun. And then off. Yeah. Afterwards, yeah, <laughs> uh, yes. Oh, I love that. I, I, I even got a call once from somebody there because I'd been there so often that then they told me a secret gig that Robin Williams was doing, and I couldn't go. I oh. know uh, uh, I had two opportunities to see him live there, and I missed both of them because I was doing something trivial like exams or something like that, uh, and doing a degree. <laughs> I was I, I, and I, now I, I regret that for the I should have skipped I should have skipped and gone but no never mind never mind yeah. <laughs> going back to the, the the Ryan connection I'd written down do you do you ever get sort of thought of as a as a double act just out of interest uh yeah I guess so I mean certainly fans of whose line were you know the old married couple from the show so yeah it's always <laughs> We are, but you know, we've both done uh, a lot of things separately. Uh, but yeah, whose line fans will always put together. I, it always kind of amuses me that fans of an improv show are the ones who hate change the most. <laughs> <laughs> Every time it's gone to a new place with a new host, there's been like a backlash, and then it becomes mm-hmm. you know beloved. And then if we move somewhere else, and they always say, "Oh, you should always bring you should bring back Richard Simmons again." It's, we were, we made it up for that one moment, and it'd be different. <laughs> it, I find it fascinating. Because you also have a sort, of, as you mentioned previously, you have a relationship with, with Brad Sherwood, mm-hmm. uh, 
uh, I, I think he played in UK towards the end of the run. Am I right? Yeah, he did. Yeah. Yeah, and then obviously more regularly on the US version. Yeah. And you had two. You tour regularly, and you have two DVDs come shows that are available on Amazon Prime and the likes. Oh, good. Some money will be pouring in any minute now. Oh, well, I, I just got you at least 10p because I was watching it this morning. <laughs> How do your shows now? Are they different to what you used to do? Do you, do you have to evolve them at all? Yeah, I mean, they're basically Who's Line. We do a lot of Who's Line games, but then we've had to adapt it because it's just the two of us. It's even more interactive than the show. We have audience members on stage for about 80% of the show. Of course, it all starts with suggestions from the audience. I sing a couple of times in it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I really started pushing myself. So that's been uh, great. And then I started touring with a hypnotist where he hypnotizes audience members and then I improvise with them. Yes. I was going to ask you that's on my last page. The Hipprov show, I think. Yeah. And I noted that you're due to be in Shepherd's Bush in May, May 22nd. Is that still going ahead during the current situation or? You know, everything is up in the air. It, I guess we'll have to see what happens. Who knows? I well, hope. I, I intend to be there. I intended to be there last time. I, think, I can't remember if it was last July or the year previous because, and I was going to try and contact yourself for an interview then in person, but I chickened out long and short. And <laughs> I'm pretty intimidating. Well, I, I don't like to say anything, but I have, in fact, missed you. That's three times. Twice we were in Vancouver. I travelled over to do interviews for the, the website. First time was different, but you were playing, I think it was on Granville. But that night, I was off to see Mr. Brent Butt perform up the road in North Vancouver. <laughs> well, I, know. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. In fact, I have, I think I found out after the fact I probably could have made both. But Yes, and and then the second time was uh, two years ago, and you were performing at the casino with Mr. Sherwood. Yes, and I I was going home that day. I I, I couldn't stretch. I, I couldn't make my money last an extra day so I could make it. <laughs> Shepherd's Bush is doable, as I say. It's only an hour away, so I can do that. I can even get home on the last last train. So <laughs> hopefully that will go ahead then. So I think roughly now where we are, where I am in my questioning, we, we're heading towards your historic performance in Corner Gas. Yes. <laughs> yes. Overlooked for awards. I can't believe it. Well, I was thinking really that's a bit, well, they obviously resonated as I mean, as I say, so many people asked me to, to try and arrange this interview it sat well and obviously off the back of that performance they managed to draw out another five seasons yeah i think i really helped i, I think you did to be oh, quite yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I brought in the people <laughs> <laughs> one thing that crossed my mind is um obviously when, when you when you saunter past um in the ruby um brent says hi dave does anybody ever say that to you on the street no. if i see you no I knew that would be the answer. <laughs> no one has. <laughs> it's funny, actually. I'm going to cut this bit out when I say it. But um, when I was in Vancouver, often people would say to oh, why are you over here? I said, oh, because Corner Gas. And I'm interviewing people. Say, What's Corner Gas? It's your biggest comedy 
sitcom ever. The, is it? Oh. And that fascinated me. I couldn't understand we, that. Canadians do not support their own stuff. It's so fascinating. We've had shows that have gone around the world and have done very well and just trying to get an audience in Canada because I guess there were years of Canadian shows not being great. And, you know, we had everything from the U.S. So people that was what people would sort of set the bar as, that, that this was this was television the way it was supposed to be, just because there was so much product. And, you know, we didn't have the money. And then that, you know, I think Corner Gas changed that. And we started to get more, a little more uh, into our homegrown stuff. Because you had your own sitcom, I believe you, you created. Getting along famously. Yeah. Getting along famously. So did you have that problem when you you got that produced? Or? So many problems. Um, <laughs> it was one of those things. My wife and I came up with concept. We were going to play sort of a the Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor of the variety world. So we had that sort of volatile marriage. It took place at the studio where they filmed. We had musical numbers that had been written by two friends of ours who went on to write a show called The Drowsy Chaperone, which won them a Tony. So we had this amazing talent. And my wife, Deb, and I went in to pitch the show. We pitched it to uh, the person who was in charge of development. We were like 10 minutes. And he went, yeah, okay. Then I thought, oh. I don't understand why people seem say it's difficult to get a show going. It's, and that was just the beginning of hardship. Because <laughs> no. we had to apply for a Canadian television fund. And, you know, it had me and my, my wife, Deb, is also uh, quite known in Canada. We had Patrick McKenna, another great comedy star here. It was all Canadian staff. And we got turned down. And then someone, a mutual friend, said, hey, if you shoot this in Ottawa, you get a lot of tax breaks, you can save money. So we did. But then there was this whole thing happening at CBC, the station we were doing it at. They were having cuts. The publicity department got cut, which made it difficult for us. They said, well, we're doing, we're giving each show a week. This is the week your show is. And I said, well, on that week, we're preempted because of the Olympics. They went, but that's your day. So they would advertise us on a day where we weren't doing a show for two weeks. So it was that. We had six episodes. Very proud of the show. We hired all our friends. The crew was went above and beyond. Then it just kind of it died. But every once in a while, I'll hear from someone going, oh, you know what? I really love that show. So yeah. you got to go, oh, good. But yeah, it's so hard to get anything going here. It's a common complaint. It, it, it happened to Brent's follow-up show, Hiccups, and... Dan Vermeer with Fred in it and it's very strange the the, the Canadian en- entertainment industry in general I, I get nothing but sort of gripes for want of a better word and how hard it is to get going and as I say the quality is obviously there and the fans are there they don't for some reason we're very adverse to having a star system because I, I don't know if it's impolite but it's like <laughs> why you have someone who's had a successful show that's run its course then why not immediately put them in another show and build a following for them so uh, which will lead to other people getting followings which will build the industry which will inspire young people to instead of so many young people going well what's the point i'm going to the states and 
I'd imagine might have when I asked you to for an interview what might have gone through you said is why me did that possibly cross your mind I well I, I knew I had a connection because <laughs> well, part of the reason for my site is I use the show as a uh, like a stepping stone to, to get to other things mm-hmm. so if you've seen Nancy in this then go and see her in this other thing which is as good if not better go and see this which the guy that did the music did this and that and that's more interesting to me and i think because uh i mentioned this before but the corner gas has already got its own engine it doesn't need my help or anybody else's help it's got a you know it's got a few quid behind it but um these other shows that people are missing or something that's been made independently or a tour that you might be doing as 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 small as your connection to the show is i'd rather tell people about that and say well go and see colin in this and that's kind of why my my site exists nice in my mind so no i can see why you're an honorary canadian well absolutely yes yes i'm looking forward to the ceremony do you have blue plaques on buildings over there i'm sure we could Uh, I'll bring one of my own next time I'm over. Yeah, and... we just nail a Tim Hortons donut and <laughs> hope nobody gets it. <laughs> so, so your your appearance on Corner Gas is solely hinged on one joke alone, in that you were on television and many other projects everywhere. Yeah. Was that the basis of them getting you on there, or did you just happen to be passing by and they wrote you in, or? No, um, Mark Farrell, who was the showrunner and wrote many of the episodes, he and I worked together on another show called This Hour Has 22 Minutes, which was Mm -hmm. sort of the Canadian version of the Daily Show uh, that started even before the Daily Show. And so, he, yeah, he contacted me and said, hey, we're thinking of doing this. Are you all right with that? I went, are you kidding? It gives me another chance to be on a show. (laughs) So... uh, so he went, and I said, you know, do you feel free to go as far as you want. I, I truly, it doesn't bother me at all. Yeah, so it was, I was there for the one day. I knew uh, Brent slightly and Lorne. Uh, we had worked together in something, and that was it. I knew, uh, I knew Mark and uh, David Story, who was uh, directed, because uh, we had worked together. But yeah, so it was nice. It was nice to hang out. I remember. There was a grasshopper invasion. I'd go outside, and there was just all on the walls and doors was just covered with grasshoppers. It was very creepy. <laughs> like the birds, only more bouncy. Yeah. <laughs> I was also wondering that joke because when I saw it, obviously, I had to take it as read. I understood the reference, but I didn't entirely get the joke as it were because I didn't realise how often you were you were working and, and, and what have you. But the following day, literally the following day of watching that episode on television, the tuxedo was on with Jackie Chan and and off you there you were. And, and I laughed more then. Here's <laughs> my, guess, my fan story. I got a call from my agent saying, hey, Jackie Chan's doing a movie in town called The Tuxedo. It's a comedy uh, spy caper. They want you to, um, they're having a reading of the script. They want you to play one of the parts so they can get an idea of the the timing and everything. I went, great. I said, so what part am I playing? 
They said, you're playing Jackie Chan. <laughs> so I go to the reading. Jackie Chan is sitting beside me. And because English isn't his first language, they just wanted to get a read on how fast the script would be and where last could be. So I'm playing Jackie Chan while he's sitting beside me, mouthing along with my lines. <laughs> it was so odd. So odd. What Again, one of the loveliest guys uh, I'd ever met. We'd film. Uh, he'd be you know, on set all day, and then he would immediately go to Chinese senior homes and, and meet with the residents there. Ah. Just lovely. Oh, wow. I, I've been a big fan of Jackie, as I mentioned earlier, my, my entire life. And uh, that comes from my father's influence. He used to be big into judo and, mm -hmm. and he loved the kung fu movies. And so did you teach him any moves? <laughs> no. Well, we were doing this because I, I did the reading. They gave me a part in the movie and we would do this scene. We would do it. Then he would turn to me and go, is that funny? I went, you're Jackie Chan. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing all right. <laughs> I, I'm no, I'm not going to tell you. And you, yeah, he was doing great, but he would, he would just kind of ask me, should I do? I said, yeah, you're Jackie Chan. <laughs> <laughs> so technically, yes, you did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I gave him, uh, yeah, some fighting comedy moves. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's a question I missed because obviously his his influences were Buster Keaton and yeah. Howard Lord. Who are your influences going along? Oh, so many. Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd, Charlie Chaplin. Then once talkies happened, I was a big Bob Hope fan. I loved that he was involved with almost every form of, inter like he was there for vaudeville, he did burlesque, he did radio, movies, television. And people, unfortunately, only think of his later years when he was doing specials, uh, TV specials that weren't very good. But mm. his movies, like uh, the road movies he did with Bing Crosby, uh, Stand Up, I got my, my daughter hooked up on them. And you see, you know, Woody Allen's uh, early movies, his character is basically Bob Hope, the sort of, you know, lecherous coward. Um, yes. A strong influence. And then, you know, Monty Python, SCTV, a lot of great uh, shows like the Dick Van Dyke show, Sid Caesar, who amazingly did a Who's line with us. But that was one of those moments where you just go, I can't believe my life. This is. Oh, wow. I've never seen that one. It was, I take it that was in the US. It was in the US. It was his 80th, I think it was actually his 80th birthday. And he was quite frail. And he just came on for the last scene. And it was that thing he does. He's incredibly good at gibberish and making it sound like he's speaking a foreign language so the, the thing was he and drew were in a scene wayne would yell out a language and they would do the gibberish in that language then ryan and i i i got to translate for sid ryan translated for drew so <laughs> it was just like i it was so exciting and i did a joke and he turned to me and nodded and he kind of gave me the thumbs up, and I thought, oh, okay, no. I can just die now. <laughs> this, yeah. this is it. And then got to work with uh, Robin Williams at the show, too. So that was, mm -hmm. uh, again, someone who inspired all of us. And I, one, of, one of those guys who, you know, within 10 minutes knows the crew's names. You know, he was an Oscar winner, and he was with us. 
<laughs> moving around. <laughs> it was it was amazing. Oh, what stories! I mean, I find I mean, all my my as I say, your your good self and, and Mr. Styles and, and Drew Carey and and people of that sort of that, that come up. I watched. I consider my influences. One of my biggest influences would be Dave Barry. Oh yeah. Um, the amount of embarrassing moments I've had reading his books on trains and laughed so hard and coffee shot out my nose. And <laughs> that's, that's a kind of, it's, it's interesting to me how that sort of generational thing where these different comedians uh, uh, influence everybody. And then somebody like myself or somebody younger than me would go back from what they know now. So people were listening to, uh, I don't know, um, can't even think of any of the more recent com- com- comedians. <laughs> That's terrible. They listen to now and go back to oh well, then they discover who's lying, and then further back, uh, uh, I know Abbott and Costello, the Marx Brothers, and I think that's wonderful. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the reason Who's Lying came back was because all these young people discovered it online. People who weren't around through the first two incarnations of it started watching the shows online. It sort of got a sort of an identity, uh, and, you know, the CW said, hey, we can, I find it so amazing, like, we're on a youth network, we're on a network that has all superhero shows, Riverdale, all shows for young people, and us, (laughs) we could play the grandparents of any of the other casts, I I find it fascinating, I love it. Oh, no, that's fantastic, that really is, that's that's what I like about all these, this sort of, I don't know, fandom, if you want to call it that, that it it can stretch out that far. I try and instill it into my uh, kids, and they pretend not to be interested, and I show them, like, Tony Hancock, and I play them the goons, and Spike Milligan is my ultimate hero. It's what started me on that. I used to listen to reel-to-reel tapes of the goons, and just my dad would sit there, sit me in front of this big machine. It's like none of your MP3 nonsense. It's a great big wooden beast of a thing with a big tape going through it. He recorded some goons in the 50s, probably 60s, and I'd listen to it over and over again, and that's what got me started. So it's, it's lovely to see it go down the generations. Just to bring things up to date, so you, you've got the Proved still touring mm-hmm. and hopefully we'll be coming around. Yeah, I mean, everything uh, right now is on hold till we see. I don't know if you know there's stuff going on uh, in really? the world. <laughs> yeah. Oh. And, you know, um, <laughs> our downstairs neighbours are insane, so we don't know where that's going to end up. <laughs> um, yeah, Brad and I are actually right now working on our virtual tour, our term managers of course don't like us out of work so they've come up with a way of approaching theaters uh, in the states and they will uh, sell tickets to their subscribers and then we do a show for them mm-hmm. so we're, we're trying to work on that which is odd it's odd yeah. improvising you know uh, brad is in las vegas i'm in toronto yeah. audience is somewhere else so we're improvising with it. so we're trying to figure out a way to use the medium so it's less of a hindrance and more of a help to us so we'll see how that goes yeah. being interesting to perhaps it will be the new thing yeah well it probably has to be i suppose <laughs> yeah no i love shows where i don't have to wear pants and the, the other thing i wanted to bring to everybody's uh, attention is you wrote a book yeah it's uh, not quite the classics yeah. which i i intended to try and get before i spoke to you but i didn't think things would happen quite so quickly 
<laughs> yeah, I, um, my agent called and said, hey, you should write a book. And I said, well, no, because <laughs> I really don't have anything to say. Writing is a lot of work. Part of the reason I'm an improviser is that I'm lazy. I don't really have anything to say, so uh, no. And based on that information, he got me a book deal. Oh, I'm not good. quite sure how. <laughs> so, um, so then it was like, oh. So I came up with this thing of writing in sort of an improv way, where I took the first and last line of classic novels. So that was my beginning point, my end point, and then the middle was totally made up. I used A Tale of Two Cities, a Sherlock Holmes one, Dr. Seuss, Cat in the Hat. Uh, so I have the beginning and end, make up the middle. And the first one I did was the Sherlock Holmes one. And it was like, it just glided out at me. And it was like, oh, this is great. And I thought, oh, right. Why was I so scared of writing? It's a snap. <laughs> then immediately hit a wall, hit a wall, hit a wall. And oh, was, no. at the end, it was like, come on, just type something. But uh, yeah, so... Um, I did it, but I'm pretty sure that's the last book I write, unless, I mean, they say that, you know, the reason women have more than one child is they forget. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I'll forget. But I should really let you go. I'm so sorry to keep you so long. <laughs> that's all right. Uh, lovely chatting with you. So there we are, the gentleman, the legend that is Colin Mockery. And it was so nice to talk to you. I really enjoyed it. It was a real giggle. As I say, I've been a fan majority of my life and to have him on the show was just mind-blowing. So I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And don't forget, if you want to see more of Colin and his stage partner, Brad Sherwood, also from Whose Line Is It Anyway, um, he's bringing Stream of Consciousness to the UK, I believe, for the time being on September the 18th and 19th, 2020, 7pm. You can buy tickets at skiddle.com, skiddle, S-K-I-D-D-L-E, and it will be a sort of a whose line is it anyway affair with improvised games and hilarity for all. It's a family affair as well, I believe. I don't, don't think there'll be too much rude stuff so the kids can watch. And it'll be on Zoom, so you don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to go to the theatre. You can enjoy it from the comfort of your own living room or your own dining room, or maybe from the lavatory. Wherever you find that your comedy suits you the best, you can sit and watch it there and, and join in if you want to. So that's all from me this time round. I've got another episode that should have come before this one from Long Cardinal. That should come next, possibly in a week's time. And then I'm also recording tomorrow, actually, with the amazing guitarist, Murray Atkinson from Odds. That'll be coming up in a few weeks as well. So until then, people, enjoy yourselves, stay safe, and I'll see you soon. Cheery bye! <laughs>